0: You're listening to Citizens History, a podcast asking how an awareness of history might help us to identify and address the most urgent challenges facing the United States and the world. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 7. Wherever you are and however you may be listening, we're glad you're here. I'm Padraig Rowan, a historian at Quincy University. Today's episode, recorded on the 28th of November, 2023, in Quincy, Illinois is the first of many that we will do on the Crusades. With me is my co-host, J. Matt Ward, also a historian at QU, and the impetus for this episode was a YouTube video that J. Matt watched, which argued that the Crusades were really a good thing, actually. Now this isn't the kind of thing that specialists on the Crusades generally focus on or normally concern themselves with, but these ideas have wide traction and it's worth taking them seriously. As always, we invite you to become part of the conversation and welcome your comments, criticism, and suggestions for future episodes.
1: Today, but that's all right. I know that we agree on most things, so it'll be an easy episode. Do we? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, I was just kidding, but um, I wanted to have a special episode uh, with you in particular because uh, your field, one of your many fields of expertise, is the Crusades, and I know nothing about the Crusades. I'll let our, our readers know uh, right now, our readers, our listeners. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, Richard the Lionhearted was an actual lion. Isn't there, like, a Disney cartoon in which he appears as a lion? Somewhere in there.
0: Robin Hood, probably? Yeah, I think so.
1: Um, I mean, that seems pretty historically... Robin's a fox, and yeah. Yeah, that that seems pretty historically accurate to me. Um, Anyway, I recently watched this video (laughs) called Why the Crusades Were Awesome, Actually, by a... YouTuber named PaxTube, I think he just goes by Pax, I will admit now, I've never watched any other content from this creator, I don't know anything about him, I watched this one video, which was posted on uh, March, let's see if I can find it here, on March 24th of this year, and as of now has 1,512,508 views. And I would say it takes a fairly conservative approach to the Crusades. I mean, I just showed it to you, and and you have uh, lots of comments about it, I'm sure. Uh, Not that we have to talk exclusively about that video, but I'm interested in understanding the Crusades on a basic level. I'm sure many of our listeners would be as well, who aren't as familiar with it as you are. Understanding the uh, culture war aspects of the Crusades, because it seems to be a big... Christianity versus Islam uh, as this video described it, a war of civilizations right? it's yeah. Islam that was a threat to Christianity and a threat to the West and I don't know if that's hyperbole or if that's what most scholars of this field think of it so yeah, where do you want to start?
0: Yeah, it might be better to start with the current culture wars aspect of it mm-hmm. and the competing narratives so this i i hesitate to uh bestow the label conservative on this video okay the guy is clearly a conservative catholic which is great i love conservative catholics this is where (laughs) i came from but
1: we're at a a catholic university there's a (laughs) fair number of conservative catholics here
0: maybe but i was you know i was talking to one of our colleagues you know, it's, it's a it's it's quite a secularized environment. You mm. know, conservative Catholics would look at—I mean, forget about our university. They would even look at the University of Notre Dame, and they would see the the forces of secularization at work. They mm. would they would see a, a, a very much a lost spirit of Catholicism, uh, a selling out to the I secular see. culture, kind of even at a place like Notre Dame, much less here. Um, but. So yes, this is I think it's fair to say a reaction against not just a secular narrative of the crusades, but also a lot of religious people today would take that on as well. So if we if we take a look at the ways in which progressives view religion today throughout the west, you could be a progressive in 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 any kind of way throughout the West today. And you generally fall into one of two camps with religion. The first, of course, is the atheist camp. The camp that says, well, you know, religion was at best a primitive, noxious force. And it's a good thing that we are a much more secularized society today. And uh, we still have a lot of work to do. And the sooner we see the back of religion, the better. The sooner we kind of... Eliminate all forms of religion, and particularly the those conservative old-time forms of religion, the better. But then you have another progressive camp uh, that would be more pro-religion, mm. and you could uh, many Christians do this, many uh, Muslims, Buddhists, of course. Pick your pick your religion. In which you know New Agey type religion, uh, this would be very prominent. In which, no, 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 no. Those atheists have it wrong. Uh, Religion is a kinder, gentler thing. Properly understood, right? And uh, the Dalai Lama would be a proponent of this view. Uh, An author who who I really like named Karen Armstrong, she's an ex-Catholic nun who writes a lot on the history of religion and the history of violence. Um, She would hold this view. And this sounds like a caricature, but these these are their actual words. You know, the Dalai Lama says... Look, any Muslim or Jew or Buddhist who kills, who commits murder, is not a true Muslim, Christian, Buddhist. Mm. And you don't just find this from this, you know, very popular religious teacher, very well-known religious teacher today. You'd find the same thing from, oh, let's take the former Prime Minister of Britain, David Cameron, uh, famous or infamous for the, for the Brexit debacle but yeah. the um, I, I, I remember a, a terrorist attack hit Britain at some point during his tenure as prime minister and he goes on record one of his first public statements after the terrorist attack is to say something mm-hmm. like this I'm paraphrasing but this was the gist of what he said those terrorists, he said, do not re- represent Islam. Mm. Uh, they're not true Muslims. Um, it, uh, Islam is a religion of peace. Mm. This was his. This was his point. Now, of course, how would he know? Uh, for uh, you know, for a white guy, for a non-Muslim to pontificate on who is and who is not a Muslim is only slightly less weird to our ears than the Dalai Lama pontificating about who is and who is not a true Christian, a, a mm-hmm. true Muslim, a true Buddhist. The, the core question is, of course, who made up this rule? Who gets to say? like, For the folks who conducted the 9-11 attacks, for example for a person like the Dalai Lama or anybody else to say, "Oh no, 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 no. Those were those guys were not true Muslims." Yeah. Um, you know, that's just silly. I know, you know, a, someone who bombs an abortion clinic in the name of their Christian faith, they're not a real they're not a real Christian. Really? Like who made up that rule? Yeah. Like, we we need to go beyond. So both, I believe, both progressive camps of uh, the pro- and the anti-religious side are missing something important. And so when we look at the Crusades, it's not just atheists who poo-poo Christianity who go back and say, oh, what savage barbarians those guys were. Uh, You know, what savagery lies embedded in the Christian religion. It's not just atheists and Muslims who are making that argument. You'd also find a lot of Christians, and some of them... In my experience, or, you know, I've I've had this this conversation with Catholics. I've had this conversation with conservative evangelical Christians, who say, "Yeah, that was clearly a black mark on mm. Christianity. You yeah, know, yeah. that was that's not what we're going for here." Um, and of course, if you're a Protestant Christian, if you're an evangelical Christian, you have the added impetus to do that because you're saying. Well, look at those crazy Catholics, Mm -hmm. whereas we we Protestants would never uh, would never engage in anything like that. And so. Both sides are missing something important, and I'm not saying and therefore this uh, wacky video, which has unfortunately garnered millions of views, uh, is uh, is more true. I I definitely don't think that, but it helps us to understand where those views are coming from. Yeah. That, you know, kind of like any conflict, when we assign blame, right, Uh, you know, whether it's the Hatfields and the McCoys or uh, the Palestinians uh, and Israel, people are going to choose their timeline to suit their own argument. And uh, paying attention to that timeline is surprisingly productive, to say, okay, yeah, you know, when you start the clock from, from your point, and from your point of view, you can see why people think the way they do. So, you know, it, whether it's, you know, your granddaddy stole my granddaddy's mule, yeah. or whether it's uh, uh, something like the Crusades, it is important to to pay close attention to that chronology. Uh, I often tell, I often tell my students. We can, we can learn a remarkable amount, particularly from a history book, maybe from any book, but particularly from a history book, just by looking at the table of contents. Mm-hmm. There's already an argument embedded yeah, yeah. in there. You know, how, why, when, where, what, is your, what is your starting point? And so if you look at, I'm sure this is true on the, like, if you look at the Wikipedia page for the Crusades, and pretty much every single textbook uh, or academic book on the Crusades generally, 1095, the date of 1095 is taken as the starting point. Mm. And then you go from there. 1095 being uh, the call by Pope Urban at Clermont for, yeah. uh, for the Crusades. And so when a you know, conservative Catholic starts the clock centuries before this, this person is not completely wrong, mm. you know. It, this is—it's uh, it, it, important to uh, to take this on board. So, a book that I plan on writing about mm. the Crusades will go something like this. It will start centuries before ten ninety five, and it will argue, roughly, that, yes, indeed, the. Crusades were a Christianized Viking raid. Yeah. On some very important level. Uh, does that mean that they were unjustified? I I think that's the wrong question, and it's not just the wrong question for a professional historian to ask. Uh, you know, because our versions, our our uh, ways of getting at what is and is not justified, what is and is not just. Uh, sometimes hampers our view of the past. You know, we, we sometimes uh, would like to project a what we imagine an ahistorical standard back into the past to, and to some extent that might be inevitable. Mm-hmm. But we, I think, need to work hard to, to get more into the heads of our historical actors. What was making them tick? What did they care about? What did they not even notice that, that we would notice? Um know it would be a mistake for us to for us to just look back and impose our own standards on that not to justify not to uh excuse but in the quest of understanding so i would argue in 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 my book that yes indeed the the crusades were a christianized viking raid one of the things that we have to understand is, number one, we have to put Constantinople at the center of the narrative, Mm -hmm. rather than Jerusalem. Not that Jerusalem was unimportant, but Constantinople was much more important. And um, we need to see what was happening as a clash of barbarian tribes who were only very recently christianized mm-hmm. and islamized yeah, yeah so when 1095 rolls around and when the pope pope urban uh issues his call in france and by the way he was in france precisely because rome was too hot for him mm. it was notorious at that time that you know popes who were supposed to be masters of Rome, who were supposed to have a spiritual and even temporal influence that extended well beyond what is now Italy. And in some ways they did, but the popes were also creatures of Roman gangs, Roman barons. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was often the case that these, that street gangs and effective warlords forced the popes out to take refuge you know, either in hill towns in Italy or even uh, they sometimes fled all the way to France. And so this was a call in response to you know, a call for Byzantine help. Mm. Byzantine envoys, the envoys of the Eastern Roman Empire, still going strong long after the Western Roman Empire had fallen, uh, were under serious threat from invading Turkic tribes, and those Turkic tribes had recently converted to Islam. Are these the
1: Seljuk Turks?
0: Seljuk Turks were one among many, and okay. yes, the Seljuk Turks were were the ones who won the famous battle over the Byzantine emperor at a place called Manzikert in mm-hmm. 1071 in Eastern Anatolia. Yes. So, what is now uh, Eastern Turkey? And so. The Seljuks, before they ever invaded Byzantine lands, before they ever invaded Roman lands, they had conquered Baghdad. They had conquered, they uh, they had they had conquered the Muslim uh, heartland, and so something that is often swept under the rug in in this whole thing is, to this day, Arabs and Turks. There's some tension there. Yeah. Uh, you know, if 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 you're honest and you 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 put your ear to the floor. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna hear a lot on on both sides I' lived in Turkey so I heard yeah. it more from the Turkic perspective from the Turkish perspective but um, they don't always like Turks and Turks don't always like them and you've also got Kurds in the mix one of the famous figures of uh, the Crusades is Saladin mm-hmm. uh, Salah hadin. Uh and he was a Kurd he was a Muslim Kurd and so if you talk with Kurds in that part of the world, they'll, I, I, I thought the first time I, uh, I, I met a Kurd in northern Iraq that they would be, oh yeah, Saladin is our guy, right? Mm. He's, he was a Kurd. They don't really like Saladin because he, they, they see him as more of a Muslim than a, they see him as someone who kind of went native and, I see. Um, you know, did the Arabs bidding or they don't see him as someone who did anything for the Kurds. Um, but you've got a lot of different ethnicities in the mix. Um, and so the Turks, I think it's fair to... And let's say Turkic peoples, Turkomans, to distinguish them from Turks today, because Turk today, uh, the to be a citizen of modern Turkey is very, very different than what it meant to be ethnically Turkic a thousand years ago. These people were only recently converted to Islam in the exact same way that people like the Normans were only recently converted to Christianity. These were Vikings who had settled in northern France and took about three generations for them to become for them to go native, basically. For them to convert to Christianity and to lose their old language and uh, and have French now as a mother tongue. Mm. And so it's important to see a clash of rival barbarian formations right at the center of the conception of the crusades
1: okay yeah Because when was the battle of hastings uh, yeah
0: that was 1066 so that's this is very
1: close to when urban issues this fall. very very close okay. yes
0: and if you if you look more closely at the normans say in the 30 50 years before 1095 you know mm. right there with hastings you know the normans in you know, if people know anything about the Normans uh, in the Western world, usually they they think of the Normans Oh yeah, they you know, ten sixty six Hastings. You know, uh, uh, the the folks who conquered uh, who conquered England. Uh, they did a lot more than that. They also conquered Ireland. They much more important. They conquered parts of southern Italy and eventually Sicily. And they did this in the context of their role first as pilgrims to the Holy Land, and then as mercenaries who hired themselves out to various Southern Italian rulers of the time. Uh, and in the common pattern, you know, these mercenaries become masters. Mm-hmm. You know, no longer can the employer control the employee, and and so these um, these Normans kind of came up in the world as a result of that. They went, they they graduated from mercenaries to allies to masters. They even defeated a pope in the field uh, in the 1050s and interestingly enough they marched on Constantinople. Mm-hmm. This was well before 1095. They had been mercenaries just like the southern Italian uh, leaders had employed them as mercenaries. The uh, the rulers in Constantinople were doing the same thing. And so uh, one of our one of our best primary sources and actually one of my favorite historians of the period of this period or any other is um, a princess a, a daughter of the a daughter of the Byzantine emperor and her name was Anna Komnena mm-hmm. um, as far as i know it's the first history written by a woman that's recorded as such and that has survived it's a, it's a, it's a great work i use in my historiography class it's a um, but she's fantastic, and she, from a Byzantine perspective, and, you know, remember that the Orthodox and the, and, and the Catholics were very much at odds during this period. I think the 1054 Great Schism, so-called Great Schism, is very overblown, but they, they were at odds, and when Anna talks about the Normans when she talked, this is way before 1095, when she talks about the Normans, she is under absolutely no illusions about who she is dealing with. Mm-hmm. These are barbarians, pure and simple. And she has some admiration for them. Yeah. She has some, you know, that they're, you know, just like, just like, you know, 18th century Europeans or 19th century Americans lionized the noble savage, you know, um, whether it's Black Hawk fighting the U.S. Army, or whether it's mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, you know Rousseau waxing philosophical and waxing poetic about the um, how pure uh, how pure a more primitive life is, and how corrupt we are in our modern civilization, you know um, the. Byzantine Empire and its, its leading thinkers were doing the, something very similar you know, they were like, oh yeah there's a um, you know, here we are these, you know in many ways decadent and corrupt civilization, As it, I mean it was it was a civilization that existed on a far higher level than anything, I think it's fair to say that existed in Western Europe at the time you know, the popes in Western Europe were probably the most educated um, and most wealthy part of the population, you know, in Western Europe, the Byzantine Empire had something completely different going on. I mean, it was it it was it was the Roman Empire. It wasn't just heirs to the Roman Empire, uh, looking down the back end of a Dark Age. You know, these were Constantinople was the great city of that part of the world at that time, and so when Anna praises the Normans. She knows of what she speaks, and she's doing something similar, something that we would recognize, you know. Um, yes, they're just, they're so wonderful. They're so vigorous. I mean, of course we're going to employ them as mercenaries. And she is also, you know, these, these they're also perfidious. They're also, uh, they would conquer us in a second if they could. And they indeed tried to. It, it was a quixotic venture, but this... You know, these Normans, fresh from their victories in southern Italy, actually marched across the Balkans and at at one point made an attempt on Constantinople and a political solution was reached. And, uh, you know, the Byzantine Empire uses the Venetians as naval mercenaries to fight off the Normans. Um, All of this is part of the Crusades. Mm. All of this is well before 1095, well before most people start the clock rolling. Um, we, we've really got to gotta take this on board. So it seems like the Crusades are, and
1: by Crusades I mean just like the classic, the big four, are part of a much grander era of transition in militarism that's sort of been unfolding since the fall of the western half of Rome. Am I hearing you right?
0: Maybe. I. I'm not sure if there was anything inevitable about it, but... And, you know, at at one point the video makes a ridiculous assertion that, you know, when, uh, you know, so Rome, you know, in its heyday, when Rome was still the capital, uh, Romans called the Mediterranean Mare Nostrum, our sea, Mm
1: -hmm. and it
0: was not an idle boast, you know, it was, you know, they had... you know, right around the time of Caesar and uh, Pompey, one of the main generals that that Julius Caesar fought, uh, played a large role in clearing pirates out of large swaths of the Mediterranean. And so you, we can see, okay, yes, uh, the kind of world in which one power reigns. There really is a Pax Romana going on here. And then in the West, as Roman rule uh, fragments and... uh, Transforms into something else, and you know, Christianized barbarians, Gothic Christians, uh, our Germanic-speaking peoples are sweeping down on the Roman Empire, and and uh, again, working as mercenaries for it, and then overcoming it and becoming rulers in their own right. Uh, There was a big, big old gap between that and anything. And, and the beginning of Islam the beginning of Islam is what early 7th century mm. so the fall of Rome in the west had happened long before that you know the, um, but when our uh, esteemed video maker yeah. says something like okay yeah but what about the Islamic conquest so he rewinds the chronology all the way back to the Islamic conquest and so the Byzantine Empire did include in those um, the Roman Empire, and of course, in the you know, we say Byzantine, and maybe it's best to just say Roman because nobody at the time, after the time of Constantine, ever called it the Byzantine Empire. That was later, that was much, that was way after the Roman Empire had fallen in 1453 to the Ottomans. They always called themselves Romans, even though their capital had changed, even though their religion had changed. Even though their uh, language had changed, now it was a Greek-speaking empire in the east rather than a Latin-speaking empire in the west. But still, that large continuity of Rome is something that not, not just people within the empire assumed and lived, but it was also what outsiders saw and named as well. So Arab tribes in the borderlands between Persia and Rome in those... Centuries before Islam, they were Christian, those Arab tribes were Christian mm-hmm. and they were tacking astutely back and forth between Rome and Persia. Um, Christians inhabited a lot of you know parts of the Persian Empire and this is where one of the big this is only peripherally related to the Crusades but but it's an extremely important piece of background like. Let's connect it to today. Today, when we look at Palestine-Israel, right, and we look, when we look at just the, the tragedy unfolding here, you don't need to pick a side to notice a few things right off the bat. If you asked anybody moderately well-informed on the globe today, what parts of the globe today are, are the most anti-Semitic? Which are, which are most hostile to Jews? I think most people would agree yeah, that the Muslim heartland is the place most hostile to, to Jews these days. Not to say that all Muslims are anti-Semitic. Not to say that no Christians are. Far, far, far from it. But as a, as a, as a matter of just overall pattern, it would be, it would be fair to make that, make that observation. You're not even getting into an argument yet. I, I mean, I, in my time in Turkey, I was, I was gobsmacked the first time I heard it, and then I was just kind of inured to it by the ninth or tenth time I heard it. People would tell me, and they weren't trying to get a rise out of me. People weren't trying to, you know, you know trigger any reaction. But they said things like, uh, Hitler was right, and, oh, wow. he sh- and he should have finished what he started. Like, this is something that normal Turks would tell me. I'm not saying all Turks would, mm-hmm. would, would go there. But you, you, you got a lot of weird fanboy culture towards Hitler. And Hitler, not incidentally, did a very effective job propagandizing anti-Semitic propaganda propaganda into the Islamic world in Mm -hmm. the 1930s and into the early 1940s. This was a a triumph of Nazi propaganda. Now the problem is, number one, Hitler was not the only rabid anti-Semite in the Western world around this time. Germans were not the only rabid anti-Semites. This was just such a common currency Mm -hmm. among Western Europeans. Of, you know, I could show you a, a speech from the time that if I didn't label it and I asked you, "Okay, who do you think? Who do you think made this speech?" You'd immediately think Hitler. Yeah. It's all full of you know talk of race danger and lesser breeds and m- the danger of mongrel hybridization. But it was Winston Churchill, yeah. it wasn't Hitler. You know, if like, this was or just you could do a, the same uh,
1: thing with uh, Henry Ford. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, absolutely,
0: absolutely. And so, but let's. Now go deep into history. And if you know anything about the broader history of Islamic empires, and you know anything about the broader history of um, late antiquity in a Byzantine or a Western Christian context, medieval Europe throughout all the medieval and early modern period, all the way up into the 20th century, and you asked... Who were the biggest anti-Semites then in history? Mm. Um, The answer, without any shadow of a doubt, has to be the Christian empires. The Christians were much more anti-Semitic than the Muslims were. And there are a couple of very important historical reasons for that. When Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire you know around the time of Constantine in 4th century all of a sudden in the roman empire officially christian roman empire it was not enough to just be a christian you had to be the right kind of christian if you were a heretical christian if you were celebrating easter on the wrong day god help you uh, you know wars were started for less in this kind of a period and it's easy to ridicule that, and i i I don't mean to i I don't mean to just dismiss it as some sort of but being a Christian was not enough in that period. whoever the you know whoever had the ear of the emperor and whatever faction of Christianity the emperor favored, that was who was orthodox and if you were heretical, you know Christian history is just littered with this, not that Islam is not of course, and so Compare and contrast that to Islam. Islam followed an old Persian precedent. So the the Persian Sassanid Empire, which Islam in its very early stages shattered and brought down. Mm. um, That empire for centuries had been a haven for Christians from Roman lands who decided, I don't want to be persecuted anymore for my beliefs by my fellow Christians People who were calling me uh, heretical, and let me go and 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 live in Persian lands, and so there were sizable communities of Christians and Jews in Sassanid Persia, and these it would be would be too much to call it tolerant, right? It it it, these people were second-class citizens. They were not Zoroastrians. They were not the but they had rights and duties within the fabric of Persian society. They ran their own schools, their own courts, as semi-autonomous communal organizations. So you educated your children in your own language. You educated uh, your children as you saw fit. You had your various you know, religious services as you saw fit. Most legal issues you were able to handle in-house. Like if one of your number murdered somebody else or something that would be trouble that would not you would not be able to handle that but as long as you kept to yourself paid your taxes and you paid your taxes in a block and as long as you prayed for the health of the monarch and outlawed any rebellious christian subjects and the same was true of the jewish communities you were good Mm -hmm. and sometimes those christians really rose to the top of that society they attained elite roles like christian physicians were the people who Persian monarchs trusted with their own health. And so there was, a, there was a real symbiosis there, a real mutually advantageous symbiosis. Fast forward to Islam. So Islam brings down the Persian Empire, but in many ways they follow that Persian precedent in Islamic empires. And this directly flies in the face of how most Christians in ancient times, but also today. And you don't have to be a Christian, just a secular Westerner. You have this certain view of Islam that does not quite accord with historical reality. Was there violence? Absolutely. These were barbarian tribes coming in, erupting out of the desert as the result of, well, centuries of fighting between the Roman and the Persian empires that weakened both of them. Imagine yourself as a boxer who's just gone 12 rounds doesn't matter if you won or lost you've got to rest and recover you can't like someone else comes along right now and and that person is going to beat you down uh, no matter how powerful you are you just can't go 12 rounds and um smooth smoothly pivot to the next fight so this is one of the reasons i would say the primary reason why islam attained such power so quickly
1: they show up at the right time
0: they show up at the right time they erupt out of these and by the way the christians of the time thought they didn't think of islam as a new religion they thought of it as a christian heresy you know I see. like who you read the quran and it's just got these jumbles of it mentions the coat, the joseph's coat of many colors like it mentions that story like five times mm-hmm. it mentions the it's it's clearly a bunch of disparate monotheistic traditions stitched together to unite the desert tribes to so, when early Islam conquers Egypt, which had been Christian, conquers the Holy Land, it conquers Jerusalem, which had been christian this was a this was a strongly Christian area by the early seventh century when it conquers Persia, it incorporates all of these things. so you can make the argument that whether it's Eastern Roman culture or um, ancient Greek culture, and Persian culture, all of these things got subsumed into Islam. These were not foreign to Islam, these were its constituent parts. And so during this time in Western Europe, the Western Roman Empire has long since vanished, literacy rates have plunged, of course. This is why they call it the Dark Ages, and this is a term that usually historians shy away from now. Oh, no, we can't say the Dark Ages because this implies, you know. Well, I mean, you don't have to just apply the term Dark Ages to Europe at the time. Lots and lots and lots of places in history suffer, go through many Dark Ages, uh, in which, because of some catac- cataclysmic disaster or invasion, you uh, the tradition of writing, the written word, literally dies out in some places, and so sure, some monasteries at the time. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, biased. I like the bias, but it's a bi- Like, um, it's a book by I think his name is Cahill, "How the Irish Saved Civilization," mm-hmm. and, and the story. Of this book. Yeah, it's a good book, you know, for what it's worth. It's uh, you know, it's true that some monastic traditions did survive. But it is also true that as a whole, the Western European literate culture uh, underwent a major, major collapse uh, as a result of that fall of the, uh, of the empire, the invasion of the barbarian tribes. Similar, we can point to similar things you know, in Islamic history. We can point to similar things all throughout world history in which it's not inaccurate to say, okay, this is a dark age. The written record has stopped we, as historians, were scrambling to fill the void with archaeological evidence or, um, uh, or newer techniques like linguistic or genetic analysis. But meanwhile, while your Western Europe is undergoing this Dark Age, Islam is undergoing this Golden Age. And again, we kind of shy away from the term, but it's not completely inaccurate. These say, in the 8th and the ninth centuries, in a place like Baghdad, in a place like Damascus, you had these communities of scholars, not just Muslims, but Christians and Jews, who were undergoing, who were basically undertaking a sophisticated translation effort from Greek, and think of all of the ancient Greek culture that we think of as fundamental to the West, right? Um, whether it's something that we would recognize as philosophy today, like Plato and Aristotle and that entire tradition, whether it's something that we would still understand today as a, a, a medicine, like Galen, uh, whether it's astronomy, whether it's uh, you know, with Ptolemy, all of these ancient Greek thinkers um, writing, say, between you know, 2,500 and 2,000 years ago, most of that, not all of it, but most of it, that tradition, to the extent that it, it existed in the West at the time of the Roman Empire, uh, had all but vanished. Like, I think it, I, I would need to, uh, maybe one of our listeners can fact check me on this. I, um, Augustine, for example, writing in the fifth century, uh, he was aware of only a few books of Plato. Plato. He didn't have the entire corpus that we that we have access to that had been lost in Western Europe, but not in the Islamic world. These Muslim, Christian, Jewish scholars uh, were tr- undergoing were were doing these trans heroic translation efforts from Greek. Often Aramaic would have been the intermediary, so that. Um, uh, That Syriac branch of Aramaic, you know, Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke, this was often the intermediary, and then it would be translated into Arabic. And so there was this very sophisticated, high-level, literate culture going on. Eventually, partly as a result of the Crusades, this would start to get retransmitted back in, via Arabic translation, get translated back into Latin. In especially in Spain especially in Sicily the kind of cosmopolitan centers in which Christians and Jews would, and Muslims would interact so this is a this is an important starting point it's not just Muslims who were noticing when the when the first crusade the proper first crusade of the very late 1090s kicks off and these barbarians sweep down into the holy land this is not just a you know, progressive or anti-Christian point of view, this is Muslims and Christians at the time were noticing this. they were saying these people don't have anything like the sophisticated medicinal or philosophical transition you know tr- uh, traditions that we do like these people you know, they were not wrong to see them uh, see these Western European Crusaders as barbarians mm. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, what about Pax's contention that the reason that there's a so-called Dark Age in the West is because of the Golden Age of Islam in the East? Or that their Golden Age sort of came at the expense, to quote him directly, came at yeah, the expense yeah, of, yeah. Uh, of, of Christianity?
0: No, I mean, there's no basis at all for, yeah. for anything like that. You don't have to, you know, luckily these traditions were preserved, you know, um, you don't have to be pro-Islamic and anti-Christian to note, as a matter of fact, that uh, just as much as Westerners look back on ancient Greece as kind of an er-moment of our culture, and we're not wrong to do that. It might mm-hmm. be incomplete, but we're not wrong to do that. But just as a matter of fact, you have to acknowledge the same lineage for Islam. It's just... There, there, it, it is not an accident that all of this ancient Greek learning that started to come back into Europe, I think it's fair to say certainly the trickling started to happen. Eleventh. By the 12th century, the movement is underway. And you know, scholars are not wrong to connect that influx of learning, that influx of ancient wisdom, with the Renaissance, they're yeah. not wrong to connect these two things. Like this is, you know, Western Europe starts to, to put it most sympathetically, rediscover itself, mm-hmm. um, and that we Western Europeans were languishing at a at a lower level of culture in the. Fifth, sixth, seventh centuries was it, I don't know assigning blame to that. Assigning like we can think of a lot of different reasons why a dark age happened. We can think of a lot of different reasons why literacy rates plummeted. Um, but to lay it at the foot of a uh, of a distant culture is yeah
1: antagonistic.
0: Well, I mean, I don't I don't mind antagonistic. It's just it, it's it's. It, there, there's no evidence to support the assertion. Let's yeah, yeah. just put it that way. I'm fine with you being an antagonistic. I just I, I would like some evidence to support the assertion. Sure, sure. Yeah.
1: Um. So let's get into the actual crusades themselves. I think that um, I mean you already talked about 1095. Proper. I think most, from my very basic understanding of the field, most folks would say that the first crusade is the most successful in terms of pure military victories and the territory that the Christians get. Mm. Um, What's going on in the minds of the people that are joining this crusade? I mean, you've talked extensively about the Normans. Are they suddenly changing their mind about just conquering territory, and is this just an opportunity for them to join in to, you know, another uh, land-conquering venture? Mm. Are there people who there's this idea that because of primogeniture laws Mm -hmm. a lot of guys who would not inherit anything from their families are joining up in the Crusades because this gives them an opportunity to earn money or land or the king's favor Mm -hmm. or something or are the majority of the people that go off in the Crusades true Christian religious believers is this a holy war for them or I suspect it's some sort of combination of all these things
0: yeah Uh, yeah, when when scholars today argue was it economic motives for the crusades or was it religious motives it's just kind of it that says more about our limitations mm. than it does about uh, about people of the time. Like when the normans for example well before 1095 made their attempt to invade the Byzantine Empire. Yeah. They did so with the pope's blessing. Okay. The pope had blessed it. Um just like the Pope had blessed the Norman invasion of England in 1066, so when we, it's it's very difficult to distinguish between holy war and any other kind uh, at this at in, in this in okay. this period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, were people trying to come up in the world? Absolutely. Were people fighting holy wars? Absolutely. Um, it's it would be difficult to tell. Tell those those things apart yeah. uh, at that time again not to not to excuse not to try to oh well we just it's all relative it's I, uh, that's not what I'm saying but uh, but I am saying we 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 do need to struggle to establish some some healthy distance there are ways in which we can really relate to what's going on and there's other ways in which it's really hard for us to relate Certainly. which doesn't make it uh, which don't make their motives any less discernible. We just need to work harder to do so.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So what's what's the point of the First Crusade, then? Uh, why does Urban call it? If, if there's all these various factors, sort of in a miasma around Europe, yeah. why do we have this idea that this is a religious crusade to take back the Holy Land? You hear that phrase all the time yeah. in reference to the Crusades, especially in evangelical Protestant right. Christianity that I grew up in right. where... The Crusades don't really pop up a lot in everyday church services, I would say. But when they do pop up in, say, (laughs) Christian pop culture, it's in terms of not just a culture war, but a religious war. So what's what's going on in Urban's mind and the people who are joining this crusade? What is their point in doing this?
0: Yeah. What's interesting, we have a couple of different versions of Urban's speech at Claremont in 1095. And some of them are closer to the events described than others. Mm. Some of them come from a little so it's an interesting exercise in analyzing primary sources. Okay. But Jerusalem does not figure very prominently. You know, when you when you read the sources and you're you're you, you try to be careful and you try to select the ones that, that are closest to the time, so hopefully more authentic. The main reason was, you know, kind of like what we talked about earlier. Uh the Seljuk Turks had just broken through. Yeah. So 1071, so almost a quarter century before 1095, uh, this Seljuk Turkoman force had shattered a Byzantine army. They had actually captured a Byzantine Emperor. That Byzantine amazing. Empire was, lead, was emperor was leading the field at the time. This was mm. in what is now Eastern Turkey. And it was a it was a catastrophic defeat. But One of the frames that is extremely important is that okay, ten seventy one. For people who know anything about the Crusades, okay, they'll they'll, they'll you know, uh, yes, Manzikert. That battle happened. The Turks start pouring into Anatolia, and you know our uh, our YouTuber is not wrong to note the demography of Anatolia starts to completely change over the centuries. Not completely. And indeed, not completely even today, but uh, largely, Anatolia went Turkic-speaking. Yeah. It started to go Turkish-speaking, and that included, there were, you know, not so much today, you will find them, but uh, that included a lot of Christians, a lot of Orthodox Christians who retained Greek in their liturgical rites, but as a mother tongue, they were now speaking Turkish. And... So uh, that's an interesting side story. But the the important frame is that exact same year, 1071, when the Seljuk Turks start collapsing the Byzantine Empire from the east, the Byzantine Empire still, at this point in the late 11th century, controlled a lot of land in southern Italy. Mm -hmm. But in that exact same year, 1071, the Normans, of all people, boot the byzantine roman forces from italy for the final time so we have to notice that there is a pincer movement happening i see that the byzantine empire is collapsing in the east yes from the seljuk turks and also in the west under pressure from these christianized vikings these normans and This is not just true of Constantinople, but Constantinople is a wonderful, wonderful example of this world historical pattern. If you are commanding an empire, as the rulers of Constantinople are, and if you are inundated by barbarian hordes, as these people were centuries before the Crusades, this crops up. This same strategy crops up in the Chinese annals. This same strategy crops up anywhere we look uh, in ancient Afro-Eurasia that the rulers are going to be hiring mercenaries because that's what you do that's what you've got to do and those mercenaries are by definition going to get out of hand and so the people that you employ to try to defeat your enemies are going to inevitably be become your enemies at some point point. and the ways in which the rulers of Constantinople dealt with this pattern was to send one barbarian against another That Mm -hmm. was the strategy. You know, one barbarian to fight another barbarian. And if they waste themselves fighting each other, all the better for us. That will help protect us. And so this is why, you know, people often, scholars often criticize the study of the crusades as being just insanely Eurocentric. Yeah. Um, And there's something to the criticism, but one of the, the thing is, to lift ourselves away from that frame, not in any kind of, um, this is not just you know, under current political correct pressure, right? Like lifting ourselves from, away from this frame is important. It is necessary. And it's also very simple to do. If we just acknowledge that what we call the crusades was just one side of that Byzantine strategy, of sending one barbarian to fight another barbarian. Because in the First Crusade, so one of the most shameful episodes of the First Crusade that of course our YouTuber studiously ignores, I can't, I can't accept that he doesn't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the First Crusaders, which can fairly be characterized as kind of a rabble, yeah. right? This is before the, the lords of Western Europe really get mobilized. Uh, you've got these crowds of people who are not just marching east, right? They're not just marching east through the Balkans and into the Byzantine Empire and eventually to Jerusalem. They actually march a long way out of their way to massacre the Jews of the Rhineland cities. So there were these Jewish, ancient Jewish communities, long-standing Jewish communities in the Rhineland cities that get massacred and plundered during this time. It's wow. it's it's one of the main pogroms of medieval of medieval Europe. And when they finally arrive, like they they fight several battles through the Balkans, Peter the Hermit. It's a it's a great tale, not great in a positive way necessarily, but it's a it's it's a very romantic tale. When they get to Constantinople and they've got to cross a waterway in order to get into Asia, right? And the Byzantine emperor is He understands the threat. He understands that these people could very easily conquer him. and So he's trying his best to hurry them all through his land in order to get them into Anatolia, to get them fighting Muslims, get them fighting Turks. And that's not to say that that he was only allying with Christians. We know that the Byzantine emperor was also allying with the Turks against supposed fellow Christian co-religionists because he understood that the threat did not just come from one side the threat came from both sides yeah and i think you know eventually they do get to jerusalem eventually you know in the popular imagination jerusalem is the center of the story but in those early days constantinople was was far more important yeah like in the eyes not just of not just for that strategy i laid out but you know the infamous fourth crusade yeah. uh, was the western christians conquering constantinople yeah. and so today scholars will just agonize i mean western scholars tie themselves in knots over this you know oh this was a crime against humanity this was not the spirit of the crusades this was this was a mis- misdirected force this was a mistake this was an aberration no Mm. No, if, if you if you if you look at what the Greeks were saying at the time, and if you look at Greek historians today writing on this subject, the only weird thing, as far as they're concerned, was how come the Fourth Crusade didn't happen sooner? Yeah, that's the only weird thing. Interesting. As far as they as far as as far as they can see, and they're not wrong, you know. Um, so a lot is hidden when we just take that kind of secular modernist view we've yeah. really got to kind of get in their heads and
1: well how do Christians in you know the 10 hundreds and 11 hundreds view the Middle East and, and, and the Holy Land in particular are they seeing
0: those as sacred sites that they want to lay claim to oh, yeah, Jesus yeah. walked there yeah mm-hmm. I mean pilgrim uh, you know when we get into the the primary sources of this period especially the early crusading period kind of like Byzantine. Byzantine is our later construct. They thought of themselves as Romans, and everybody else thought of them as Romans Mm -hmm. as well, you know, these people of the Eastern Roman Empire. In the same way, the Crusades are a later, that's a later label. They didn't call themselves Crusaders. They called themselves Pilgrims. Most of of the the words that we find in the primary sources are, you know, some... uh, Some variant on pilgrim. So what gave the Normans their entree in southern Italy was that they had been pilgrims to the Holy Land, and they were returning. They were coming back from Jerusalem as pilgrims. And these guys in southern Italy wanted to hire them out for their services, and they said, sure, great. So, yeah, I think pilgrimage would... Pilgrim and pilgrimage, these are the better ways to to visualize how people of the 11th and 12th centuries thought about what was going on. And yes, it became an armed pilgrimage. And Mm. yes, there were just shameful episodes of massacre and this and that. But um, I've mentioned that, you know, so the Arab culture, and that included many Arab Christians, right? To this day, there are still Palestinian Christians, You know, at the time of, in the 10th century, I'm pretty sure Egypt was still majority Christian. Majority Christian. This is three centuries after the Islamic conquest. And the reason why, of course, you know, our YouTuber makes a big deal about the the Dimi tax, the Mm. Zimi tax. And this was a tax, again, modeled on that Persian precedent of, you can be, you do not have to be, Muslim in this society. You can be Jewish. You can be Christian. Indeed, you can rise to great heights in this society. And your community is going to be paying this tax and for the, basically for the right of religious freedom. And, you know, you're going to be good. That was not exactly the same kind of society that the Turks ruled. When the Turks came in they were conquering Arab lands well before they, you know, Muslim lands well before they started conquering Roman lands, Christian Mm -hmm. lands and so the Arabs viewed these invading Turks rightly as barbarians right? And so you've got this really interesting pattern where the, you know (laughs) you can't really use the word indigenous in this context at all But the Muslim and Christian Arabs, they looked down their noses not just at the barbarian Christians, you know, the barbarian Western Europeans invading, but also on the invading Turks. They were all kind of primitives. They were all kind of barbarians. Likewise, the Christians, the Western European Christians and the the Turkic Muslims, they Often saw things eye to eye in weird ways. Like, we have lots of accounts of, on the Muslim side and on the Christian side, especially on the Muslim side, the, um, it's like, oh, these are fellow warriors. These are people we can respect. These are people mm-hmm. who share our code of ethics. I don't know about these, these farmers and these, uh, you know, uh, these weaklings who we rule over, but we are fellow kind of. Warriors, and we share the same ethos. You get, you get a lot of those weird echoes as well. Um, yeah, okay. a lot of really, a, a lot of really interesting contradictions, even as we try to find a pattern.
1: Okay. Uh, Pox in his video references a historian, John J O'Neill. Are you from? I, I looked him up. It looks like he's got one book, uh, the name of which is escaping me now.
0: What is the historical He probably art? swims in the same conservative yeah, Catholic water. It was something called like Crusader Warriors
1: or something like that. And, and okay. Uh, clearly this historian has a particular perspective about what the crusades were about and Islam was a threat to Western culture. Mm-hmm. What's the state of the, the historiography? What's the field of you know, if somebody were to ask me about yeah. the Civil War I could, you know, you've got your military scholars over here The war is one on the battlefield and You've got your political scholars And the real consequences of the war are happening in Congress or in Lincoln's right, cabinet right. And then social historians like me are like Well, there are things going on on the ground that have consequences that, that stretch out further yeah, But what, yeah. what does um, what is the Crusades field look like?
0: Yeah, it's like much else in the historical scholarship it's it's getting away from grand narratives Mm. and a lot of the the best scholarship is much more granular and it's going into detail and it's digging into the uh sources in arabic Mm -hmm. uh sources in turkish and 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 so on and and there's nothing wrong with that i want to emphasize that you know Okay, on the one hand, it's an Achilles' heel of the historical profession, but on the other hand, it's 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 a necessity and it can be harnessed as a strength, you know. Of course, no one can be in all the archives, no one can read all the primary sources, but... Um, so one of the things that I want to do is to bring back the grand narrative. Um, because of the specialization, I feel like the the, the whole narrative is fragmented. Uh, you. You've got a lot of people doing a lot of good work in a lot of important silos, but there's there's precious little overall work, synthetic work, kind of trying to knit together all of the, the very important spade work that, that historians are doing. So yes, you've got... Military history is still, of course, a thing. Yeah, it yeah. has to be a thing in, in, in the Crusades. But you've got ever more ever more social historians, you know, ever more just, uh, you know, wonderful micro-histories of this particular person or this particular interaction and, you know, the kingdom of Edessa in the 12th century or whatever it is. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I could go into more detail, but I, I I think it's a really important point that, you know, how do we communicate with your normal Educated citizen, you know, your normal educated person who's really interested in this can't be expected to wade through these specialist Certainly. articles, monographs. It's, it's just, uh, and that leaves the field open for our esteemed YouTuber. Our, you know, uh, you know, you, you get the the reaction is going to be, you know, you, you know, historians always complain. Well. If, this person's not a historian and they wrote like, okay, it's true, and I can share the criticisms, but at the same time, since we are not writing those large scale histories anymore, somebody's gonna do it. Um, some people will do it really well even without, you know, formal training. But that's what I wanna do. Yes, I, I, I wanna I wanna get into the the larger arc. And in fact bring it all the way to the twentieth century. Yeah. You know, twenty first century, I don't know. Remember when George W. Bush let the uh, word crusades escape his lips, uh, you know, during during uh, our invasion of Iraq? Uh, the Muslim world pounced on that like you would not believe. You mm-hmm. see? You see? Like, for us, the crusades are ancient history. Yeah. But in the Muslim world, they're very, very present.
1: Yeah. Uh, as I said before we started recording, it reminds me a lot of the still continuing battles over confederate monuments and the lost cause in this country foreigners or international people come to the US and the civil war is some little blip on the radar for them for Americans it means so much what kind of building off that idea what kind of ideas have carried over from the crusades that we still Hold with us today is it mainly the civilizational idea that it's Christianity versus Islam? Because I, I look at the Crusades and yeah. I kind of see a West versus East thing as well, like who should control this territory and uh, yeah. what sort of religious sites should have prominence here. Uh, what's the legacy, I guess, of the Crusades?
0: Is yeah, the big question I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. I mean. I just want to flag two things before we, before we delve deeper. A lot of people would argue that one of the main legacies of the Crusades was European colonialism. Mm. And we can go into that further, uh, later. It's, it's, it's a point of view. I think I'm, I'm, you don't have to be pro or anti to, to acknowledge that "Mm, there's a lot there. There's a lot of traction there. Um, and yeah, one of the one of the second things I want to flag before diving deeper is so when we invaded Iraq in 2003, of course the neocons were, you know the, the, these this was the, the the tight circle around George W. Bush. This was the, you know, there was a huge support in the populace uh, for it. I don't want to make it sound like it was only, Bush and his minions, they had a huge amount of popular support. But it wasn't just neocons and Christian conservatives who were just gung-ho to go into Iraq. Christopher Hitchens, a famous atheist who, uh, who recently died, he was fully, fully, fully on board as well. And so you got this weird, odd meeting of the minds in which... I think of my interpretation is that this alignment between a fanatical atheist and Christian conservatives and it's not just Christopher Hitchens, it's also think of other famous atheists like Sam Harris, mm-hmm. who's just I mean he spent years, if not decades, just bashing Islam up one side and down the other. And I just wanna I wanna stress, you do not have to be pro or anti Islam to or pro or anti-christian or pro or anti-religion to to notice deep flaws in the arguments of these atheists yeah and one of the things that just stands out like a canary on a bedsheet is that <laughs> there's this ancient christian prejudice against islam and there's this modernist assumption about islam mm. and they're curiously aligned yeah uh, so Someone like Sam Harris, someone like Christopher Hitchens is just adamant that, you know, I don't know about all these other monkeys, but I have superseded that primitive Christian culture. Yeah, I am now a part of a Western secularized culture, and I have these views of Islam. And never really bothers to look that closely on, well, you're... Christian forebears have that exact same perspective on Islam. Just the structure is too close for comfort. How do we how do we account for that? How do mm. we account for people who claim to, claiming to be above religion uh, coming to embody its worst aspects? And I'm not I'm not uh, like I want to I want to stress that I am not. I don't think either camp, either the progressive pro-religion or the progressive anti-religion camp, I want to stress that I don't think either is really, um, I think both are missing something important. But having lived in Turkey, and this would be true of the Crusades, but this would also be true of the larger forces of European colonialism over the past several centuries, right? Right. When most Europeans, most Westerners, would have thought the Crusades dead and buried, right? Who knows? Who cares? Like, what relevance could that have to today? But having lived in Turkey for many years, I I came to understand that, for example, the foundation of modern Turkey in the early 20th century on the ruins of the Ottoman Empire, it was resisted. It was, you know. Europeans thought that they were going to re-erect some sort of or erect a colonial regime or rather a patchwork of different regimes on the ruins of the Ottoman Empire. They thought they were going to carve up the Ottoman Empire like a Thanksgiving bird. Uh, Particularly the Greeks, the Italians, but also the French, the Brits. Uh, The Russians were certainly pushing south as well. And the foundation of modern Turkey in the early 20th century was only the result of officers in the Ottoman army going rogue, most famously Ataturk, Mustafa Kemal, the founder of modern Turkey, leading an army and then ejecting the occupiers, ejecting the Europeans who were attempting to carve up the Ottoman Empire in the wake of World War I. Mm. And The way that Turks today think of this is like, you know, you wouldn't know that it was a hundred years ago. Like, this stuff happened a few days ago. Like, there's still this paranoid, and I mean, I I realize that I'm I'm speaking from my perspective. I know that Turks would not call it paranoid at all. But this visceral sense that outsiders, and particularly Western Europeans, are still attempting to undermine Turkey to this day. It animates Turkish politics in a, in a way that's very, very difficult for foreigners to grasp. And for them, it would have been... It, it, it's a shoulder-shrugging matter of obvious fact that the European attempts to colonize, and you know the British mandate in Palestine, and the French mandate in Syria, and, and the attempts by the Italians and the Greeks and others to... Uh, carve up the Ottoman Empire and you know the Greeks wanted to make Constantinople the capital the the Greek capital again the Italians wanted Antalya, this place in the south of Turkey Um, for the the Turks it would be a matter of mind-numbing obviousness that of course this is part of the Crusades of course this is part of the legacy of the Crusades and so this brings us to the larger uh, the larger point like if we lift it away from this East versus West clash, that we're not wrong to to kind of to, to kind of notice when we think of Columbus, right? When an American or a Westerner thinks of Columbus, we think of okay, yes, you know, Hispaniola, and um, you know, other than the Vikings, the 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 first guy that we know of, the first Western European that we know of to make landfall in the Americas. And you know, it started this movement of, uh, uh, of European colonization of the globe. But the closer you look at Columbus, this guy was a crusader. This guy was obsessed with Jerusalem. He was obsessed with the Holy Land. He went to on his deathbed, on you know in his will, he set up funds for an army to be raised to go finally take Jerusalem from the hated infidels. And you'll appreciate this as he was sailing through what we now call the Gulf of Mexico, right? These, you know, Caribbean islands. He was convinced that he was this close to, you know, he, he thought that he was touching the Asian, he, was, he yeah. was almost at the Asian mainland, right? And more importantly, he had very wacky ideas of geography in addition to, uh, he thought that this would be the route. Because the frontal assaults on Jerusalem had all failed, because the Crusades were, you know, the later Crusades after 1291 were just this series of failures, We've been kicked out of the Holy Land and we were still trying to find a foothold here. Mm -hmm. Two centuries after we've been booted unceremoniously from our last mainland possessions in, in, you know, um, what is now Israel, Palestine, Syria, Lebanon. He thought that, no, 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 this is going to be the way we're going to go to Jerusalem this way. I'm this close to the lost temple of David, mm. and we're going to find a bunch of gold, and we're going to raise troops, and we're going to conquer Jerusalem this way. It, it was these fevered dreams of a crusader that I think Columbus would have wanted to be most remembered for. Yeah. Like well. he, he, and it yeah, wasn't yeah. just him. It was, it was you know, the monarch, you know, Ferdinand, who, mm. who had bankrolled him. He too was just on his deathbed dreaming about the conquest of Jerusalem. Uh, well, hadn't it been Ferdinand and Isabella that had repulsed
1: the the Moors, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah, the, the Reconquista is you know, a type of crusade.
0: Yeah, yeah, the Iberian Peninsula, you know, funnily enough, the same year that Columbus set sail on his fateful voyage, 1492, was the same year that uh, uh, the most Catholic. Uh, Ferdinand and Isabella um, managed finally to boot the last remnants of Muslim rule from the Iberian Peninsula. Mm. Yeah, so that has to be considered part of the Crusades as well. Yeah. Usually, Jerusalem gets center stage, but yeah. you know that's a you know, that's a big part of it too. Yeah, I, I'm beginning to see a pattern here. Yeah. Uh, uh, the
1: Crusades have been lionized on one side vilified by the other or really depending on one's perspective it Mm. seems to me that a a grand theme we can pull from this conversation is the truth is somewhere in the middle which is somewhere where where we often end up I think Um, how does slavery fall into this uh, weird moral reckoning we're trying to have with the crusades because from my limited understanding of early the early development of the African slave trade in North Africa or, or the Crusades in general, Christians felt fine enslaving Muslims. Muslims felt fine enslaving Christians. Both sides say you can't enslave some of your own religious membership. And both of them are fine with enslaving infidels or non religious people or, or persons who would celebrate a religion different from Christianity or Islam. Mm-hmm what's the what's the deal with slavery Certainly it pre-existed the Crusades do, do the Crusades yeah. heighten the slave trade or slave traffic in the Mediterranean?
0: Yeah, that's fair I mean one of the one of the main ways in which we can tie together the Crusades as commonly understood with the larger phenomenon of European colonization of the globe is that the Italian merchant republics, the Italian city-states, and especially Venice and Genoa, but also some others, Pisa played a role for a while, Amalfi played a role for a while. These Italian city-states effectively carved out these maritime empires in the eastern Mediterranean. Not only the... the, uh, the Genoese also had colonies on Corsica and some very, very few on the Italian mainland. But mostly this was an eastern Mediterranean phenomenon. You know, they were powerful in the port cities of the Levant. Uh, you might know that just a massive, massive trawl of um, English vocabulary, particularly nautical, financial, administrative vocabulary in English today, comes originally from Arabic, oh. uh, and it's it was through these Italian, uh, basically maritime empires, these colonial outposts. They were trading with the Muslims. They were, and so uh, words like admiral or algebra or uh, julep mm-hmm. or um, just uh, on and on and on. These these are words that got picked up originally by Italians and then were transmitted into other Western European languages, like technical and you know, arsenal, sloop, uh, you know, all sorts of words originally uh, come from the Arabic. And so one of the things that these Italians were doing in the Eastern Mediterranean was participating vigorously in slave trades. And so The Genoese famously would transport slaves from, say, what is now Crimea. They had colonies in what is in in the Crimean Peninsula. So these would have been, you know, various ethnicities, um, mostly very light-skinned. They would get transported to Egypt. The Genoese would enslave these people, transport them to Egypt, sell them as slaves to the Mamluk dynasty of Egypt, and become very wealthy in, in doing so and that's a fascinating that's a fascinating story in its own right. Uh, they weren't supposed to, uh, as you know enslave Christians they sometimes did you know it was often the case that you'd kind of mislabel or somebody so you, you knew someone was a Christian, but well they're you know they're Greek Orthodox they're you know um, Bulgarian Orthodox, you know, let's slap it on. They're not going to be able to communicate with their captors, and so we're just going to enslave them anyway. That kind of stuff did happen. Uh, The Muslims, of course, uh, enslaved as well. There was a vigorous kind of... From well before 1095 and extending well into the Crusading period, indeed extending well into the early modern period of uh, Mediterranean history, Slave raids were all too common on both sides of the Mediterranean. You yeah. know, this just happened. This yeah. this happened all the time. I think uh, the so-called Barbary pirates, the North African uh, states centered in what is now Algeria and Morocco, they were famous for this. And sometimes capturing on the high seas, sometimes raiding the coastlines across the northern coastlines of the Mediterranean. They even raided Iceland at one point. Uh, you know it. it this was this was big business, yeah. and so <clears throat> I think it's a fair statement of fact that um, you know you're you don't have to be you don't have to come from a pro-Islamic or a pro-Christian perspective to just acknowledge that this was happening, and if you want to pick sides, fine, but you're going to have just vigorous counter arguments that you have to deal with. Like there's no way to say, Oh yeah, you know, the, the Muslims enslaved many more people than the, than the Christians did or vice versa. Yeah. Like you can point to slavery being justified in the Christian and in the Muslim, the Holy texts, Justinian's code, the famous, uh, Byzantine lawgiver of the fifth century, uh, you know, this was the greatest largest collection of laws on the subject of slavery I believe ever in human history all regulating slavery all understanding that slavery is just a fact of life and this is what we do this is and this is how we do it and this is how you uh do it in a way that that uh you know confines itself to the law um now the the connections between this medieval story, between this story of Mediterranean slavery and the far more, I think it's fair to say, horrifying Atlantic variety. Uh, there are connections, and mm-hmm. there are there are differences as well. Um, and the Genoese, not coincidentally, they were they were, you know, some of the biggest slave traders in the Eastern Mediterranean. They also helped to pioneer the slave trade in the Atlantic.
1: Yeah, I was familiar with that. They're investing in these early um, ventures and a few shops and traders, I think, living on site in places like Angola.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're they're the ones actually who are pioneering Western European voyages down that West African coast. You know, well before the the Spanish and the Portuguese take it into their own hands. The Italians are dominant in those, say, those two centuries before Columbus sailed. They're the the real ones who are exploring and naming these near-Atlantic islands. All of the earliest names of these Atlantic islands, uh, like Cape Verde was uninhabited at the time. The Canary Islands were inhabited, and that's a very interesting and disturbing story. But... um, Madero was not inhabited, uh, you know, the, um, the Azores were not inhabited by humans yet. It it was, it was Italians who reached them, gave them Italian names, and eventually, uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese took over. But, so that the slavery that basically was pioneered in those near-Atlantic islands, you know, uh, it took a lot of expertise and it took a lot of financial capital to plant sugar plantations yeah. on the Canary Islands, on the Cape Verde Islands, on, uh, on all of these places. And the people with the best you know, seafaring knowledge and um, financial capital were the Genoese. Yeah. So they were, they were pioneering this and eventually it, this is what was transported to the Caribbean. You know? So the, slave tra- uh, the, the sugar trade particularly in the Caribbean, also in the Brazil, this was the real turbocharged variety, and I think it's fair to say that this is also some of the most uh, slavery is such a broad term right? oh, yeah. It's such an umbrella term, but examining everything as well we can with within a you know, world historical perspective, I think it's fair to say that that the variety of African slavery, Atlantic slavery, that was transplanted onto the islands of the Caribbean, into Brazil, that was some of the most horrific slavery in human history. I I, I think it's fair to say. And I don't say this just, oh, yeah, the Christians. I uh, I think we can be grown up enough to just acknowledge that as um, as a datum, you know, the horrors of the Middle Passage. The, uh, you know, the inevitable reaction of the Haitian Revolution, um, and connecting with the Crusades is a a, um, a very interesting sixteenth-century Spanish uh, thinker. His name is escaping me at the moment, but um, no doubt I will remember this sixteenth-century Spanish thinker. Uh, he's a cleric. He's a Roman Catholic priest, and he's in the vanguard. He's actually spending time in the Americas, and he is—he's uh, noticing. This is before the transatlantic slave trade takes off in earnest. At the moment, the Spanish are attempting to enslave the indigenous peoples of these Caribbean islands, of uh, and you know, so they're transplanting this this. Uh, 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 this sugar trade, and they're trying to make it work, and they're noticing that the indigenous peoples are dying in massive numbers of disease, and they don't understand why. We understand from our vantage point better, you know, all the, yeah. the diseases that we brought that just decimated uh, the indigenous populations. But this, uh, this Spanish cleric makes a very interesting argument, and usually the argument is only half is remembered. The first part of the argument is this, it is unjust to enslave these indigenous peoples. It is unjust.
1: Are you talking about Bartolomé de las Casas? De las Casas, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's yeah. So so, yeah. He he makes this. So he makes this argument, and this is usually cited in textbooks. You know, there are humanitarians floating yeah. around. You know, but in the very next breath, he says, and therefore we should enslave Africans. Because the Africans are hardier, they will not succumb to disease in the way the indigenous people will. That's what we have to do. Yeah. So he's, he's not <laughs> some sort of humanitarian. Not that we should ever think that he was. I, it, it, you know. But the ways in which this was settled, I mean, you did have, as crazy as it sounds to us, This perspective on what was right and what was wrong. Mm -hmm. Columbus himself was brought back to; he was way too zealous in governing his his colony in the Americas, and he was actually brought back to Spain in chains. Yeah, you know, um, it's it's a it's a very interesting story, and it, it it helps us to to kind of see how, as foreign as it seems to us, there was. Uh, an attempt at being just even if that just wouldn't pass muster at all for us in our day and age we should also be thinking about maybe this is a good place to conclude we should also be thinking about well how will people in the far future and I hope they exist and I hope that we you know lay the groundwork for for you know future generations whose you know length and extent we can't imagine but we would be very naive to think that these future generations of humans will not look back at us today and call us primitive and call us unjust and mm-hmm. call us savages um, not without some reason yeah we could continue on
1: a while with that Issue and I would love to connect that more to the attitudes surrounding prisoners of war and slavery that are emerging from the Crusades. Yeah, yeah. But let's wrap up with your I don't know 10 second review of Kingdom of Heaven
0: by uh, Oh, you know Ridley what Ridley Scott. I, you know what? I never saw it. You never saw that. Movie? I I, 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 I saw it a I Crusade saw, scholar. That uh, you know. uh, yeah, no, it's 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 shameful. I I've seen clips of it and you know, what our YouTuber was criticizing, you know, he's not completely wrong to be like, well, Saladin is portrayed as this, as this wise, urban, oriental kind of type, you know, and the the Crusaders are depicted as barbarians. It's not completely wrong. It's, it's, you know, no movie, much less a Hollywood movie, is ever going to be able to depict... The reality, but if it it can get us, if it can get us thinking and talking, um, I'm all for it. I. um, I should see it. I don't really want to see it. I've I've read reviews of it. I. I, um, There's an old, there's an old anecdote that you'll like. Maybe you've heard this before, but uh, you know, a history professor. Is you know at some sort of outreach day, and he's trying to interest students in the in in being history majors, right? And his his main selling point is something like this. He says, <laughs> he says, do you like, you know, historical movies, historical drama, uh, you know, the kind of uh, the kind of ways in which history can be dramatized? And uh, the prospective student says, oh yeah, yeah, I do. And the professor says, "Well, would you like not to?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I feel I, that. <laughs> I, um, I mean, one of the if if I were to make a movie about the Crusades, I would center it on Constantinople, and I would try to depict that kind of weather vane in a tornado kind of uh, pattern in which these emperors at Constantinople were enrolling Western European barbarians to fight uh, uh, Turkic barbarians and vice versa and what an interesting pattern that could create and how that eventually brought down the Byzantine Empire because yes, the Ottomans conquered Constantinople in 1453 to completely and finally end the Roman Empire after what, 1500 plus years but It was the Crusaders in 1204 in the Fourth Crusade who had struck the mortal blow against the Roman Empire. So it was on borrowed time after that.
1: Well, I think that's a great place to stop. But I also sense a future episode emerging, completely dedicated. This will be one among many uh, to you watching Kingdom of
0: Heaven. Okay. Okay.